Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast just looking for a quick fix. My name is Corey Hazelest and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. You make it sound like we drug that good addicts, Corey. I'm addicted to politics, Steve. Uh, do I need to get the intervention banner out? I'll tell you who else is addicted to politics, and that's Jeremy Hunt. So we've talked, we've spent a couple of episodes talking about... Sorry, that's a segue. That was classic. Oh, can I say it's it's that ruthless professionalism that we're known for so uh, we spent a couple of episodes talking about the problems of the UK economy we talked about the problems of the government we've talked a little bit about what's what was in Jeremy Hunt's budget uh, let's talk a little bit about the politics of the economy where we think it might go from here We are recording this probably a couple of weeks after Jeremy Hunt's budget. Unusually for a budget uh, in the last six months, it didn't cause the country to go into an economic tailspin and have to be renegotiated within about a week. It's a nice change, isn't it? It did, yeah. It, it's uh, refreshing. Yeah, didn't I for- do anything else. But, yeah. I forgot what that was like. Um, and uh, we are. Then this episode will be recorded. Will be released. But it's going to be towards the end, I reckon, of the local election campaign, which is is going on. So uh, recess started today. Rishi Sunak out launching his election campaign, um, pointing at potholes. Have you seen the photos of him with potholes? Is he defected in the Lib Dems? Well, hello, Mark, by the way. Well, you could tell it wasn't a Mark Pack approved pothole photo because there were no rubber ducks in the potholes. Oh, I've forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, definitely not defected yet for the Dems. Budget itself was uh, quite political, wasn't it? It was a short-term fix to, well, an attempted short-term fix to some problems without spending a lot of money, without actually fixing any of the big structural issues that we've talked about over the last couple of episodes and hour or so. Yeah, I feel like the, the, the best analogy for the budget is Britain's economy is a house with a leaky roof. Rather than, you know, fixing the roof properly, Jeremy Hunt is basically running around trying to put pots and pans uh, under the drips to uh, try and prevent any further damage, but isn't actually doing anything like buying a ladder to go up there and fix the tiles. Are you saying that Jeremy Hunt should fix the roof while the sun is shining? Well, it would be nice. And that would be deeply ironic after mm. everything. Yeah. It, it, it feels weird to me that we are in a space where because Rishi Sunak has been able to pass a budget and not collapse an economy and because he can speak in sentences and because he's occasionally even got people to agree to do things and occasionally those things even have a basis in reality that that is therefore showing a dangerous level of competence and maybe the Tories can pull off a 92-star win, which is... I just find it interesting is how the Westminster herd sort of moves, and that seems to be the consensus based on very one little... Poll, one poll showing a 5% um, switch to the Conservatives, which in the very next poll that Delta released 
went back again. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, exactly. And obviously, no votes have been counted. And you'd expect... So one of the things I think is interesting about the, the polls at the moment is that you'll have a lot of... What seemed to happen in the polls last year is you, you've got a lot of don't-knows. And the don't-knows tend to be people who were voting Conservative and have... Uh, been put off voting Conservative essentially by their own government and if they vote they'll vote Conservative probably and that's the kind of shift that you don't really get picked up in polls yeah. but might happen on the day itself we don't know if that's going to happen or not yeah. um, but you've got to provide them with a reason to vote um, well, for the Conservatives which is why Rishi Sunak is, is going out and pointing up potholes and launched his local election campaign in, in Dudley he went to the Black Country Museum um, and was there with Andy Street. Do you remember Andy Street? I, I do remember Andy Street. Um, and uh, uh, I know all the people he fears. I, he, everyone, he, with his two million pound war chest. I can't, I can't talk about that. Yet. I, I've just got to keep this professional veneer, Steve, for at least a couple of weeks, and then I can <laughs> actually have opinions about the Labour Party again. But, um, but, but interestingly, Sunak didn't invite any national media to his local election launch he only invited local media interesting uh, but in it's it's a very weird and it, it's probably a, a sort of separate issue but it's interesting the way that the government is say only inviting say sympathetic news outlets when Suella Breverman goes to Rwanda um Rishi Sunak hasn't done a proper sit-down interview it's a it's a weird um obviously Benjamin Netanyahu came I think this week and I, I, no joint press conference and admittedly I can understand why the UK government probably don't want to have a joint press conference with, with Rishi Sunak I mean yeah exactly with um, Rishi then being asked so what do you think about his judicial reform uh, I, I mean that completely makes sense but it just seems a bit of a pattern of there's not a lot of scrutiny happening there um which I, th I think is interesting. So I, I, I hinted on the last episode that we might talk about reforming the electoral system because yeah. that's the kind of hip reform that we like to talk about on the podcast. And there's an interesting article by a, a few um, academics it's on the LSE blog. Uh, essentially talks about um, how the first-past-the-post system sort of means that governments get into a bit of a, a quick fix system rather than trying to fix underlying structural problems so it talks about essentially uh, how it, its view of political parties is that the political parties in the UK have been shaped by parliament itself so they're not social movements or political movements that then stood for election instead parties were created as the franchise expanded which then uh, essentially, they're catering for different parts of the franchise. And actually, I think you can sort of see that, can't you? Yeah. Um, and, and certainly that's sort of true of the of the Labour Party, I think, in, in 1900, and sort of true the Conservatives and Liberals, as they then were, so different bits, so I can see that. But it means that essentially then the, the structure of British politics is very, very top-down in the it makes it very Westminster-centric. And we've talked a lot about the sort of London centralism on, on, on other podcasts. But um, I think it, do, it does mean you've, you you not only have a sort of... You, you see you control the commanding heights at Westminster and you pull levers and do stuff. But also, because the winner-takes-all system means 
you don't have coalitions. No one can really do any long-term reform. And I, I mean, we've been very critical of some of the decisions the coalition have made on the podcast. But actually, in a way, the reason why the government could take the action it did is because you were in a coalition. Yeah, there was a... There was a... a weirdly, despite the fragility of the, major, of the majority they had, because there were multiple parties bought into it, it becomes a, the cons- actually becomes the consensus a lot easier. And once it becomes the consensus, it's a lot harder to actually undo. Um, and yeah, it, it is such an interesting thing where one of the benefits, supposedly, of First Past the Post is that you get these decisive um, you know, majorities, which means governments can do things and they don't have to you know, argue amongst themselves or argue amongst part of, with other parties after the elections happened. And yet, we're not able to see any of the long-term thinking that would normally, you would think, go with that. Because ultimately, they're just forced into being concerned about at the, at the longest, the next general election, and in practice, the next set of local elections, which are happening every year at some point. Yeah, or the uh, or, or an, an impending confidence vote. Yeah. And, and no, I think you're right. And it, it's one of the things that actually, if there's an alternative scenario in which there's a narrow Labour victory in 2015, at which point um, you've got people like Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, who would have been hoping, I think, to hold Ed Miliband's feet to the fire. And so actually, at that point, you know, if you're the socialist campaign group and you've got 10, 15, 20 MPs in your caucus, that gives you a lot of power. You're almost, you're not quite a DUP being bought off by Theresa May for a billion quid, but there is a lot of power in that system, essentially because, as you say, these big parties are coalitions in and of themselves. The horse trading almost happens beforehand rather than, say, in, in... Obviously, in Germany, you've got very different coalition politics playing out where Germany's just uh, essentially had to veto an EU agreement on combustion engines because the coalition parties couldn't agree to it. Because um, the, uh, yeah, the, basically, because Porsche don't like it, the FDP leader drives Porsches and is mates with the head of Porsche. Huh. Um, that's my top German politics talk there. Um, I mean, yeah, it's interesting about the long term. So we we talked about Mrs. Thatcher, who obviously did have that sort of long term talk. And there's, I don't know if you've read it, there's uh, Donald Sandbrook's new book about um, Thatcherism in the early 80s. And his essential argument is that the economic changes that were happening under Thatcher would have happened anyway in the 80s. Um, Wait, I I saw. I don't know quite how I feel about it because I think in a way, I think he has a point. I think there's a a lot of social movements that are happening independent of politics. But I think it's also, it's the way in which they happened as well, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, if you switch things around and you had, say, a Labour government going through the same same situation, you would not have had the same policy prescriptions, which means you wouldn't have had the same overall outcomes. Yes, you may, you, you would still probably have had uh, you know, the closing down of mining pits over time. That would have just been a thing that happened um, because they were just not economically viable anymore. Um, it just wouldn't have happened so quickly. There wouldn't have probably been a big bang in terms of finance um, and banking in London, but there would have been a slow growth. So you would have seen a much more 
gradual transition into a knowledge economy rather than just and now we're a knowledge economy. So Harold Wilson closed more mine, coal mines than Margaret Thatcher did. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's usually, if you Google that fact, and I did before the podcast just to make sure it was true, uh, rather than just something which I'd uh, imagined was true. A lot of the time, it's people on the right who mention this fact, almost to sort of let Thatcher off a little bit and sort of be, ah, well, the, the, you know, the left don't like the fact that Mrs. Thatcher closed the coal mines. But on the other hand, Howard Wilson closed more. So who, who's the real conservative? Um, obviously, if you're on the Labour left in the 1960s, you say that Harold Wilson's obviously a fascist. Uh, not here, obviously, listeners, he's very much a friend of the show. But actually, the fact that that goes unremarked in the 60s is surely a sign that actually it was done in a way that doesn't lead to the scarring of communities. No. You know, Brastoff was made in Yorkshire, set in the 80s. It wasn't set in the 60s, and that's obviously for a very, very specific reason. Yeah, yeah. it's effectively how you handle the cons, it's effectively how you handle the fallout of it. Again, like, so much of Thatcher's like, negative legacy um, could have been easily undone if she uh, had just said, this, this oil that we've got from the North Sea, rather than spending it on tax cuts, we're going to use it and invest it in a... Uh, what do they call it in Norway? A sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, a sovereign wealth fund, or we're, go, we're going to take it national. We're going to take it, and it's going to become the the bulwark for future investment in education or, or, or whatever. It could have been literally anything other than tax cuts, and actually, it would have had a much more positive impact overall um, into the long term. Uh, but that wasn't what was done, and so you're left with. The, the negative impacts uh, and legacy that Thatcher has. Yeah, and actually, it was for all her talk, talk of small state. Actually, it ends up being quite a big state. So, you know, more increased investment in the in the police and the sort of security state, um, more payments, so that the, the welfare budget increases. I mean, actually, real spending on the NHS increases as well in fact it's time enough it's not quite enough to keep up with demand but you know, it, it does increase uh, which again is, is one of those things which is uh, it, it irritates both the left and the right so in many ways it's one of my favourite political facts um, but I, 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 yeah it's it, it, it's weird isn't it it's, it's the way so there's a, a conservative uh, in the the Birmingham local conservatives uh, and hello if you're still listening to this, who at the last four council tried to claim that Keir Starmer was like Liz Truss because they both want economic growth, which is a little bit like saying that if Gandhi and Hitler were vegetarians and they're very similar people. It's like, it's not, it's fine to want economic growth. But it's how you get there, what areas you're, you're trying to grow. You, you could grow the British economy by, um, you know, massively in, in, in or you could grow the British economy by opening up the coal mines again. And sending kids down to work in the coal mines, like that's still not a good idea on any front. But well, you reopening, do it. reopening the coal mines and deregulating labour—that's a very Liz Truss meets Jeremy Corbyn policy. I know. Yeah, it's uh, you know the true centrism of Britain. <laughs> oh, no, um, but and actually, it's interesting. I think that there is a sort of economic consensus in the main in, in Labour, the Conservatives at the moment. After the. Um, I don't want to call it a hiccup 
after the belch, maybe, mm-hmm. of, the, of trust and the mini-budget, there is this sort of return to uh, the more sort of, you know, uh, focusing on almost outside, that, that, that kind of te- the, the technocratic aspects yeah. of, say, what the IFS are saying, what the OBR are saying, independence of the Bank of England, or I imagine all that sort of stuff is going to is going to stay in, in in a very much reaction against the sort of Johnson and Trust. Yeah, Johnson and Trust and Gove. Yeah, I had enough of experts. Um, there also seems to be a bit of a consensus, and certainly we've seen that now in the Windsor Agreement, which we haven't really talked about on the podcast, but we will at some point because I managed to get you to talk about the, the electoral system. It's getting you to talk about Brexit. It's going to be a really fun battle. But you, you, I think you have this acceptance is, is sort of making Brexit work as well, isn't it? That rejoining is is not on the table for reasons of for political reasons or for reasons of sanity, uh, and therefore essentially you've got to try and improve the deal you've got. Which I feel like it, again it would happen in different ways, but it's, it's still happening, isn't it? Um, and so there's a there's a, a sort of slight consensus there. I suppose the, the thing I don't get is you've got living standards are going to fall for by unprecedented levels as at the time you've got massive inflation and the cost of living crisis. I don't, I don't see how the government just think that they can tinker around the edges, hold steady and hope that election day works out for them. I don't see that happening. Uh, no, I don't think it, it, it can do in terms of like them actually being able to maintain a majority. Um, I think tinkering around the edges, displaying a base level of competence that wasn't seen under Johnson and wasn't seen under Trust, actually is the sort of thing which has the potential to keep a few individuals that are voting Tory in the Tory kind of like camp. Or at least you're not going to win anybody back, but you can. But you you are stopping the uh, 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 the flow of voters to Labour at this point. I feel we've. I feel like if I feel like basically we've hit the peak of what Labour's polling leads are going to be, like when it was like twenty twenty five points ahead, whatever. Like we're now down to what fifteen to twenty. Anywhere between ten, 10 and twenty. Ten, 10 and twenty, um, which is a lot more feasible and realistic as a, uh, a, a as a situation. And I feel like a big part of that is because a lot of the um, Tories who went, "What the hell is this? This is absolute nonsense." Have gone. Oh no, the grown-ups are in charge again. Okay, we've. Sunak, we may not be overly keen on him, but he's there, he's fine. Hunt's fine. That's what I feel like they're going for. I, I don't think they're expecting to enter government again um, after the next general election. I think they just want to try and limit the damage as such to the, to the extent where the election after, they can, it feels like it's feasible for them to win again. Because otherwise, what what they don't want to do is end up in a 1997 situation where there's a landslide and it takes multiple general elections to get back into a winning position. I think so. I, I think we talked about it either on the Patreon or on the podcast during the the last but one Conservative leadership election between Sunak and Truss, and talking about how the uh, I suppose the in a general election, if you're Liz Truss, you maybe your you've got a, a lower 
floor of MPs you could hit with a higher ceiling. So you could see a potential trust election where she could you end up with a Tory party with like 100 MPs, but you could equally she could lead the Tory party with 450 MPs if yeah. you kind of have that. You, you sort of pull the same alchemy that, that Johnson did. Yeah. With Sinek, it's sort of slightly different numbers, isn't it? It's more sort of your... You've got a lower floor and a lower a higher floor, but a lower ceiling. So maybe you know, anywhere between two twenty and three twenty. Yeah. Um, and I suppose Sinek's very trying to get to three twenty. But I th- I th- again, I think the problem we have, and it's the it, it's the culmination of a lot of the problems we've talked about over the last couple of episodes, is how are you you have a conservative party that is not providing things for voters to conserve. Yeah. Like houses, secure jobs. You are maybe, and actually, that's where the mini budget is so catastrophic for interest rates, people's yeah. mortgages. Um, that if you've got, if you manage to, you, you, no one who rent, very few renters are going to vote conservative. That, that, that's already a sort of clear divide. If you lose the homeowners as well, that doesn't leave you, I mean, well, yeah, people yeah. on narrowboats, it's, it's a very small voting coalition. Yeah, you, you just don't have a lot of people you can actively, actively target. And that, that kind of fundamentally is the, the Conservatives' core, core issue is that they've done such a bad job in a lot of areas that is now being realised they're struck they're going to struggle to actually bring together a a voter coalition that's feasible to even remain competitive let alone win um and if, if they get lucky or if things go their way a little bit more economically whatever it might be and those that 10 to 20 becomes a 5 to 15 in terms of poll aids you know averaging at that seven eight percent well, that's not even enough necessarily for Labour to have a majority with, with new boundaries and things like that. And so you they're in a much healthier position overall. So I think it's all about just kind of steady as she goes, don't rock the boat, make sure we're doing everything to look as competent as we possibly can, differentiate ourselves from the absolute mess that was Johnson and the absolute mess that was Truss, and just keep our, keep heads down and just do the best we can. Um, and just go from there. Both, both Hunt and Sunak know that they're probably not going to be in their positions after the next general election. For Sunak, that's fine. He's got to be Prime Minister. He can now swan off to America and do whatever the hell he likes. Hunt has had a very long career, actually, I think, in, in, in British politics by, by current standards. Wouldn't shock me if he were to just go, I'll do one more term and then the swan off, or he maybe even swan off in the middle of it because, you know, an interesting job opportunity or something turns up. Though the man is a millionaire and might just decide, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to stick around. Yeah, he's, he's not. He's still fairly young as well, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Like, actually, if a hunt were to stick around, that wouldn't actually be a bad thing because then you've at least got more... Uh, at least one concert, one, 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 a semi-reasonable conservative who's got you know political knowledge and is similar to Theresa May, um, is, and has actually got can can sit there in the back of the of the house on the back benches and be like, no, no, stop that, it's silly. Like take up the Ken Clark role, um, except with less charm, um, and fewer cigars, and fewer cigars and hush puppies. Is he a fan of jazz? I don't know. It doesn't strike me as a fan of jazz. No. It wouldn't surprise me. But. No, I, I actually, given there's a lot of 
Tory MPs who are it, it feels like who are standing down. They could so do many. yeah, they they could do with some um, uh, some experience there. Yeah. Uh, can't wait for the Jeremy Hunt against Kemi Badenoch leadership race. <laughs> Although apparently the, the the one of the rumors I saw, so it, it must be true, is that people in Boris Johnson's camp were leaking WhatsApps by Kemi Badenoch, I think encouraging ministers to, to resign against Johnson, which was essentially Johnson trying to tarnish Kemi Badenoch's image in re- in case there is a Johnson versus Badenoch leadership contest after the election. I just, oh man, I don't even know where to begin with that. That's just ridiculous on so many levels. I just don't understand why Boris Johnson would want to be leader of the opposition when he could make lots of money making really terrible speeches he wouldn't bother preparing. Because he's a narcissist and thinks he's Winston Churchill. That's about it, really. Um, Yeah, you kind of hope it's a more sophisticated reason than that, but... It's not. It's it's, it's not at all, and it's never going to be anything other than that. The man's just a narcissist. I mean, so, so stupid. So very, very stupid. Um, I mean, mean, the man's another genuine risk of being, like, um, banned from the house for a sufficient amount of time that it automatically has the the right to kicking him out and uh, and a by-election, which he might not win, given Uxbridge is a a winnable seat for Labour in current polling. Mm. So... I, I don't even begin to understand the mind of Boris Johnson. Uh, I feel like you need to get an expert in narcissism in just to understand it. Again, it's you. I thought it was silly when there were rumours that he was backing Trust because he thought that she'd fail quickly and then he could come back. But it does feel like that was definitely part of it, as well as I think a genuine loathing for Sunak who he feels betrayed him because obviously it was Sunak that caused dozens of dozens of ministers to resign from the government for the repeated feelings of Boris Johnson. Yeah. I feel like we should stop there because we're, we're sort of rambling a little bit and we've gone a lot. We've gone off the British economy and on to Boris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah, normally if there's a sign we're talking about Johnson that we should probably shut up. <laughs> we shouldn't give him oxygen. Oxygen of publicity, we should say. Not, you know. Well. If you want to give our podcast the creative oxygen to thrive you could always sign up to our Patreon page couldn't you Steve? I can see the cogs working in your brain there, that was that was delightful uh, yeah you can go to patreon.com slash not enough champagne and for a uh, few pounds every month you can get access to early episodes uh, that we've been putting out uh, including this little series uh, that we've been, done, that we've been doing over the past few weeks uh, and uh, yeah it's uh, all fun and games. Uh, drop us over, give us a few quid a month, and it all goes towards uh, running this delightful little tete a tete we have every week. Ah, uh, Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough pain. No. Not enough pandemic. I think I went not enough pain, which is <laughs> the spin off podcast. Um, uh, is that your BDSM podcast? <laughs> I know some people I could uh, arrange it if you want I, 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 th- I think that would be uh, <laughs> unwise our Facebook page 
is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Our Twitter handle is at no champagne pod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Kiko Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy Potter.